I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, tens of thousands of, quote, troubled teens have been forcibly lifted from their beds and sent to boot camp wilderness therapy programs. Decades later, many are still haunted by the trauma. All your civil liberties are stripped from you, and you are told that you are worthless and troubled and that you need to reconcile all of your issues in order to find your way home. How to do any of that, what that all means, is not explained to you, and and it's a very dark and mysterious sort of way of of trying to fix someone. And later, from summer camps to Outward Bound to the Girls and Boy Scouts of America, the great outdoors has had a lasting and positive impact on the lives of young people. Scouting was to empower and to feel like, okay, I I can do these things independently. Just being in the wilderness is profoundly impactful. Trauma and healing in the wild, all ahead on Life Examined. Most of us are probably familiar with tough love. Perhaps we've been scolded or treated harshly for our bad behavior. But each year, thousands of American teens, with the consent of their parents, are forcibly removed from their homes at night and driven hundreds of miles into the wilderness. Isolated and confused, these kids are deprived of their family, friends, and comfort for months. Subjected to hours of therapy, many report being repeatedly told that they are worthless and troubled. Wilderness camps are not new. Many have existed in America for more than a century. But since the 1960s, some wilderness camps, specifically in areas like Utah, have incorporated a more structured, militaristic, and therapeutic approach. Fast forward to the last few decades, wilderness tough love boot camps have grown into a billion-dollar industry by promising desperate parents a cure for their misbehaving teens. And despite charges of abuse, many tough love programs remain unregulated. In his new book called Troubles, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs, Author Kenneth Rosen takes a closer look at the tough love industry through the eyes of four former residents. Rosen has also had firsthand experience. One night in 2007, he too was roused from sleep and forced away in what he now calls a kidnapping. Well, Ken Rosen, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you here. Jonathan, great to be here. So I want you to take us back in time a little bit to when you were a teen. You read about this in the book. It it was a tough period for you. You felt lost. Uh, The school you were attending wasn't the right fit. And you were getting in a bunch of trouble. And then one night, your life completely changes. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, I had come home for the first night in um, about a week or so, I think it was. And uh, I had been out with friends or or, or staying over at... um, uh, other friends' house, and I went to bed early, which again was was not like me. But of course, these things always seem to jive when they uh, least uh, least need to. And uh, it was around two fifteen when the lights went on in my room, and uh, at the foot of my bed stood two very large men that I, men that I'd never seen before, and told me um, to get up and get dressed. Uh, you know, they uh, directed me to, to, to get my clothes and, and that they were on a schedule and that we had to get out and, and leave. And, of course, I had no idea what they were referring to. And at some point, the one of the transporters felt like I was going to throw a punch at them. And so they restrained me in the bed with a knee to the back. Um, and all the while, my, my mother and father were, I, I guess, watching through the crack in the door, my bedroom door, as they, um, as, as they were then transporting me out of the house and into an SUV and off into the night. 
which was followed by a nine-hour drive north into the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York, um, and the start of my first program, which was a, was a wilderness program. Hmm. How did that feel? The feeling of of you know the weight of of another person in the middle of the night pressing down against your neck, uh, your neck or your back. The the thought that your parents were complicit in this somehow. How, how did you make sense of that? It was like watching my future vanish. You know, everything was just disappearing all at once. All my plans, all my desires, all my hopes, everything changed uh, in in an instant. Of course, you know, again, I felt sort of culpable in that moment, too, that I had brought this on me in some way. Did I necessarily believe that that was the intervention I needed? No, but I also felt like um, this was sort of the life that I was living. I was a troubled kid. I was a bad kid. And so this is what happens to bad kids. Mm. So you, you get up to the Adirondacks. What, what happens at that point? What, what kind of a facility are you in? Who are the people you're surrounded by? Take us there. Right. So, um, the SUV pulls up to a green shed in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, um, in the Adirondacks, there's snow all over the ground and covering the pine trees. And um, the two jolly counselors open up the door and tell me to step inside this this this, this shack and um, ask me to undress. They ask me to get into a catcher's stance and cough, ostensibly to check whether I'm smuggling anything in nether regions. Mm. Um, they hand me a pair of underwear and give me all this hiking gear and tell me to get into a different SUV Um which I did sort of just mind-numbingly uh, absent-minded to everything and um, went off on another short drive deep into the woods, um, at which point we got out and I hiked with another sort of uh, another gentleman who emerged from the woods for, uh, I forget how long it was, but we hiked deeper into the woods and joined up with a, a small cohort of, of other young men who were circled around a fire. And that just started my first night in the wilderness the first night of which would be, I think, 60, 68 odd uh, nights in the wilderness, that first stint, um, over the course of which they were trying to get me acclimated to this this industry, this, this, this program type where um, you're given expectations that have no relevance to the real world. All your civil liberties are stripped from you, and you're told that you are worthless and troubled and that you need to reconcile all of your issues in order to find your way home how to do any of that what that all means is 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 not explained to you and and it's a very dark and mysterious sort of way of of trying to fix someone who is um underlyingly depressed and anxious and, yeah. and worried some of those those images you just brought to us this idea of of having to be essentially strip searched led off into the woods in the night to meet another group of campers around a fire. I mean, this sounds like like a nightmare, like almost like a dystopic nightmare. I mean, to feel totally unaware of what's going on, perhaps um, given up or abandoned, not where you're going. I mean, d- do you remember just how dislocating that experience was? Yeah, and I I remember the, I, what I remember more is feeling like this is right. This is like I'm ready for this. I I I'm a bad 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 person. And this is the trouble with the the programs is that I was told that I was troubled and this is I'm a bad person and this is what 
um, what happened to me, that sort of intake procedure became for me something very comforting as I went through uh, juvenile detention later in life, as I went through jail visits later in life. This was something that then became normal to me uh, when it shouldn't have been. So, you know, I remember it being both haunting and also something that I had relished insofar as knowing that this was right, right? I was doing the right thing if I was following the narrative of a troubled person. Um, and that's, and that's I think, the major failing of the programs. They, they break you down, but they never build you back up. Yeah, they break you down, but they never build you up. That That's interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, putting that into the context of that situation now where you're uh, up in these mountains, you're in the outdoors with all these other troubled teens, as they would say, what what is the path to redemption that they offer you? What is the healing process that they're presenting you with um, while you're up there? Can you say something about that? Yeah, they, I think they, they, they take away any sense of time and ownership of things and replace it with being in the moment, right? They say you have to focus on being in the moment. Don't worry about other people or, or uh, what's going on back home. Just focus on yourself um, you know, learn how to take care of yourself in the woods, work your way through these through these levels, sort of like AA, but you're you're doing hard skills and soft skills. So you're you're writing your life story down and sort of tailoring it to um, whatever's conducive to the, the counselor or the therapist's needs. And then also digging latrines and uh, making critter traps and um, packing your own pack and uh, learning how to start a fire, a rudimentary fire um, all these different things are supposed to be character building, um, but they negate the fact that you were taken from your bed in the middle of the night without warning, which is traumatizing in of itself and, and never addressed again throughout all the programs. And then they ne- they never note that once you're done with the wilderness aspect that you're expected to go to a different program, which is an argument I've made in promoting Troubled is if if the wilderness program was so effective, why would we need follow-up treatment in a residential facility? Um, of course it's not. And uh, the experiential and adventure components of these, while maybe exciting on paper, aren't really exciting in, in real life. Can you, I mean, were there other kind of degrading acts or moments of humiliation or, or things that you just witnessed while you were out there that, that still stick with you? I, I mean, I, there's like the little moments, right? Like having to uh, call my number. You know, we were assigned numbers based on when we arrived in the group. So I would be nine, and then as people would leave and I would advance, I'd, I'd become eight, seven, six, five, four. Um, so I'd have to go to the bathroom and call my number out. Why? Because you had to let the counselors know that you were still there and not running away. Um, you know, you never had a moment to yourself, even when you were taking, uh, going to the restroom, um, out in the freezing cold or wiping with, um, with snow. Um, you know, all these things sort of end up being health concerns in the real world, but in wilderness therapy, they're, um, they're character building. Having done some research on, on these camps now, do you know if, if the, the practices that were forced upon you? This, this very kind of militaristic life. Where, did these come from, from any source or any philosophy or, or any idea that, that was proven to be helpful to teens? The, the, the psychiatric approach fell away with the rise of more spiritual outward bound in BYU or, um, hmm. you know, brings in young university programs. Um, but the emphasis on mental health returned in the 1980s and, and 90s. Uh, it's the, the, the issue with the, with the therapies is that it's again, 
following a very traumatic event for someone that has never been addressed, it's also forced treatment. You're, you're not going because you want to go or because you want to better your life. You're going because you're told you have to go. And no addict has ever been forced into AA and succeeded. You know, if I can boil it down to just something so simplistic as that. Um, the, the therapies ended up being more about, oh, well, the wilderness is good for you. Ergo, being forced into the wilderness for a long period of time will be good for you. But most of the programs, wilderness programs in the United States are just that. You're, you're forced into a wilderness therapy situation. And yeah, hiking is great. I'm not going to argue with that. But when you're forced into it as a teen with another group of teens who are equally as disturbed and, and finding it difficult to make it through their, their daily lives, that's not going to help anyone. Now, this isn't to blanket generalize against wilderness programs because there are programs overseas in other countries outside of the states that are doing this in a more effective way not forcing patients in, but by and large, this is how it's done in the States. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that. that you're, you're really emphasizing the, the involuntary nature of this, the forced aspect of it takes away what could be the therapeutic part of it, I guess, right? Yeah. And there, there's, you know, the, the, the studies that come out about the programs come from industry-funded researchers. Um, it's sort of cyclical in that way. And then the efficacy rates are pegged to timeframes of three to six months. And as your listeners will note, oftentimes the client or the teenager ends up going to a residential program and is in there three or six months later. So it's really hard to say that they did well. But the wilderness and adventure therapy um, research will say, oh, well, look how good they turned out after you know being in the woods for three months. And it's just mm. not it's just not accurate. Can you now kind of give us a bit of a snapshot of what would happen to you after this program? Because this was only the start, and you spent 270, 280 days in total, as you would define, in some level of incarceration. Right, 288 days between uh, three programs, and that was before I, uh, I ended up in juvie. Um, yeah, you know, from you're in wilderness and you're told that if you do well enough, you might be able to go home. But as you progress through the program and get closer and closer to the end, uh, you start to learn that there are these other programs. And and for me, it was a therapeutic boarding school to which I was sent um, after finishing the wilderness program. Um, you know, they 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 sell these programs as a way to mitigate the the um, entrance of teenagers into the you know, uh, school to prison pipeline, but this is just a different pipeline, uh, with similar, similar value systems and, and similar, um, similar treatment, um, treatment facilities. Uh, and so from, from, from wilderness, I went to a, a therapeutic boarding school and that was a trajectory that a lot of people make, a lot of students, a lot of clients make from, from wilderness to, um, the next program. Uh, unfortunately from there, not always, you don't always go home. And those programs can last anywhere from 12 to 18 to 24 months, depending mm -hmm. on how much education you have left to complete in high school. Um, and that opens up a whole nother can of worms as to the efficacy rates of those schools and the legitimacy of their education programs. Mm. Well, let me ask you this. When you think about the kind of the wilderness programs, the ones you mentioned, the Adirondacks, or I'm very familiar hearing stories about the ones in Utah, when you think about these kind of therapeutic boarding schools, for the folks that created these, do you think they really believed in them? Do you think they thought they were truly benefiting these young men or women? Or would you say that their motivations were questionable? 
I know they believe they were doing well. Mm-hmm. I be, I know that they still believe they're they're doing well. I I, mm-hmm. I know that they have very good intentions. Um, but so blinded by those good intentions are they, or the belief in those good intentions are they that they're missing the complaints and the the concerns and the abuse that has come out about these programs since the 90s. I mean, this isn't a new phenomenon by any stretch. It's only now that young people have more platforms through which to disseminate their stories, through which to reach their, um, through the media and representatives of, of their, in their state legislatures. Um, and, and those programs have continually swept any of those comments beneath the carpet by saying, oh, those isolated incidents aren't indicative of the entire experience of these programs, they're sensationalist, and besides, the people who went to these programs are troubled to begin with, so they just didn't work for this one person, but they work for many, many, many other people. Um, And I think that disillusionment has hampered any sort of growth within the industry, positive growth, that is, because I I try to... or stay on the line of the journal, the objective journalist, but it's hard to do nowadays. And I think that there are needs that need to be met for young people. That goes without saying, but the, the industry that is formed to meet those needs are, is failing and has failed and continues to fail and not change its practices. And that's the most troubling of all, that they know that there are issues, but refuse to address it because they believe that what they're doing is um, essentially God's work. Mm-hmm. And what I learned in your book is just that a number of these facilities have closed over the previous decades. Um, Could could you just talk a little bit about that? That These are kind of now defunct in a lot of places. They're defunct, but they continue to crop up. I mean, there's ongoing lawsuits now against programs in Wyoming and uh, uh, South Dakota. Um, there are there are continued complaints about programs that are open in Utah, which has about a hundred or so uh, programs operating today. Um, and my mistake in um, in in some of the uh, the understanding of the industry now is that it had sort of petered out or had reached a plateau. But after speaking with a lot of state legislators in Utah and, and Oregon, learned that uh, in fact it's grown. Um, a lot of them have been able to seek funding from, as I mentioned earlier, Medicaid and Medicare and and sort of work within uh, some licensing that allows them to receive that funding as well as the privately funded clients. Um, So they found ways to continue on. And that's sort of the disturbing takeaway from the book is that despite, again, everything that has been reported about the programs, that there's still little oversight, there's still no federal regulation, um, and children are hurt year in and year out because of that. Mm. So, so you you've had an experience that was that was pretty startling and negative, as we've talked about on this program. But but you've spent, I mean, hundreds if not thousands of hours interviewing other um, folks that had been through very similar programs. You profile four in this book, but but I'm curious when when you think about the body of research that you've produced, what. What comes out? What are some of the stories, the feelings, the traumas that people are left with? Almost everyone is left with a trauma from or, you know, a moral injury from that night when they were taken. And if not that, it's from that sense of disassociation from the community in which they were living. Um, You know, on on a fundamental level, a lot of the people I interviewed had a very difficult time articulating what it was that troubled them about the program. Some were restrained and sedated and sexually and physically abused. 
but most people found it difficult to really say why they walked away from the experience with with um, you know a troubled um, and disastrous um, uh, experience, whether that ended up giving them complex post-traumatic stress disorder or any other number of maladies that they already had or compounding what they already had. And I think that's because they they come back after two years away to a society that has moved on without them. They, they have no longer the ability to relate to any of the classmates they were once with when they go, if they go to community college or a four-year college, a university, they have no way of associating with those people. They don't understand what a wilderness program is. And so how do you talk about being taken in the middle of the night? And it really haunts you that you've become this troubled person, but now you have the evidence to suggest that you really are troubled, that you're so different from everyone else that you can't function in normal society. And that, again, compounds the drug use, compounds the alcohol abuse, deaths of despair begin to shoot up after people leave the programs because they don't know how to re, uh, reintegrate or function within a society that has more or less left them behind. Mm. Um, so that's the trauma that I think everyone is having a difficult time articulating. It's something that's so almost under the surface that it, it only crops its head up every every so often, and when it does, it's disastrous. And to me, it, it, this refers back to a line you said earlier, which is how they break you down, but they don't build you up. And so what I'm hearing from you is that the identity that you're left with is still that of being a troubled person. There's something wrong with you. You're unfixable. You're not worthy of, of good things. And to me, that, that sounds like a very dangerous place to be or to, uh, to send a kid back into the world with that mentality. Yeah. And again, you know, many of them lived in the world with that mentality to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. Or felt that they didn't, they didn't fit in in a certain way. And then to have that maybe not introduced, but compounded is, is certainly damaging. What do you think should, should come of this industry? I mean, are we talking more um, federal or state oversight? Do you think they should just be abolished uh, fully? What, what would you like to see? As a as a pragmatic person and also one who is extremely jaded, I don't think that the industry is going to disappear, um, despite the calls for it to shut down completely. I I do think that there is an opportunity now with growing interest um, in the stories of the children who went to these programs for us to introduce federal and 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 more stringent state regulations and licensing uh, for such programs. It's tough to say whether or not anything will change despite the continued interest and the acknowledgement of problems within these programs because, again, this has been on the radar of the federal government since the early 90s. It was again in the early aughts and now again um, today. But it's a it's an uphill battle, and I think that if everyone who was at these programs will continue to voice their stories and share their experiences, um, we'll see more and more state legislation come out that seeks to curb the tertiary industries, whether that be the transporters or the education consultants who feed children into these programs or the programs themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing some movement in Utah and Oregon to that effect now. You know, I, I, I'm still kind of astounded thinking of the absence or, or the culpability or responsibility of the parents in all of this. Perhaps they didn't quite know what they were doing, but, and then I think of what's the long-term damage between the young person and the family? I mean, is there not this long-standing sense of betrayal? What's your sense of that, the rupture in that relationship? 
I would say that Troubled is the first book or research or reportage that focuses on that, what became of these four individuals later and how they ended up either integrating or not in- integrating with the family unit and society writ large. Um, you know, it, some people end up returning to their mother and father better off. Some people end up returning to their mother and father terrified of maybe being sent away again. But over the course of early 20s, mid 20s, early 30s, those relationships end to fracture a little bit more because the adult child, now an adult, is finding that maybe the issues weren't so much with them but with the family unit. Now, again, I don't want to put the burden on the parents because these children were very difficult. I was a very difficult child. I don't I don't hope that upon any parent, least of all myself with my children. And I know that it was a decision made in times of, of, of turmoil and dismay. Um, but I just think that there, the culpability lies with um, the the industry for giving p- terrible messaging for the educational consultants who who sell this idea to parents, and again for the parents, um, maybe partially because they didn't do their own due diligence. But of course, I mean, what what can we expect of parents who are working full time and and um, trying to figure out their own lives and, and child rearing when um, you know they're they're tasked with now researching programs for their children? Maybe, but uh, you know, not everyone has that that, that many hours in a day, um, which would be nice to have the federal government regulate the programs to. to to prevent um, some of this malicious activity from happening. Well, Ken, let, let's say that um, you, you at some point are the parents of a troubled teen. You find that this cycle has, has continued. How would you now go about trying to help this young person, knowing what you've been through, knowing all about this industry? What, what do you think are the right steps to take when you find that your child's is 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 acting in ways that seem very unhealthy and dangerous what what do you think there are two ways to answer that question the first one is to answer it as as thinking of myself as a parent of teenagers who are now in that situation it's already gotten so bad and i would say that there are community based treatment inpatient intensive inpatient intensive outpatient that 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 keep the child within the community Um, that are more beneficial than sending a child away out of state. They also have family therapies that are included in these inpatient programs, and I think that the unit as a whole needs to be repaired. Uh, The identified patient is always the child, and I don't think that's accurate. Um, I don't think that's that's sort of genuine to the the nature of um, child disturbances. It's it's oftentimes the, um, the not the community, but the the space in which the child is living. Now, the, the second way to answer that question is to look at it from uh, the father uh, as a father of two, uh, a toddler and an infant, uh, which I am, and that's to say that I'm working very hard to uh, be open and honest with my children and not act so far so much as as the parent as the know-it-all as the one who says I will force you to go to school because this is what is the expected path or um, I know everything and therefore um, you should just trust me in this or I've been there before and I can tell you that it's going to end up like this because frankly in in 15 years and 18 years when my children are teenagers I'm not going to know what it's like to be a teenager. I'll have no frame of reference for what it is they're going through other than maybe some hormonal changes that I too went through that that are consistent through generations. But other than that, I don't really know their experience. And I think that honesty is lacking. Um, Again, I, I recall having said earlier that if I was given an opportunity to really think through 
what would have benefited me to have my parents as um, not oppositional forces, but as guiding hands, then perhaps I wouldn't have needed such an intervention. Perhaps it wouldn't have gotten so bad. And again, I have to, you know, qualify this all by saying I'm not blaming parents because parenting is not easy and it's difficult. And I'm terrified of saying this, knowing that I might have to have uh, some of these conversations with my children or, or with, with education consultants or, or other people who might need to help me. But there is something to be said for um, having that line of communication open from the very start so that when things start to go awry, they don't drift away, but rather stay within the family and come back to you. Yeah. And, and it strikes me that you, you've used the word, uh, the word child a lot throughout this. Um, and really referring to teens, I think oftentimes we mistakenly think of a 14 or a 15 year old as as an adult but but i i i sense the way you're using the word that we should think of them really as young people as children that are still unable to really make the kind of quote-unquote rational decisions of uh, of an adult right right the adolescent brain doesn't develop fully until they're 25 or 26 or around that age and i have often asked in interviews what i would say to my 16 or 17 year old self and i don't know how to talk to that person because that that is a child who believed himself to be um, worldly and well-read and, uh, you know, wholly against the system when, in fact, I was just disturbed and sad and lonely and scared. Um, how I would connect with that person, I don't know. But I do know that that person was a child um, and was treated instead like an issue. Well, Ken, I, I've learned a lot today, and, and I wonder if there's anything else you'd want to add or leave us with about your experience, about your research, about this book that, that we haven't touched on today. Um, there's some readers who have said and noted rightfully that I ended up okay, that I ended up uh, fairly successful and seemingly well-adjusted. And I can tell you that that was only after years and years and years of um, disturbing occurrences, whether it be with law enforcement or just personal battles um, late into the night. Um, and there is no answer to fixing a kid um, there's no right way of parenting. Um, my path was different than many others, and I wouldn't use me as an exemplary figure. I would just note that um, there are other options within the community. There are options with state-funded programs that have better oversight, um, and that if you look a little bit harder, you'll find that there are options that are better than the troubled teen industry. I've been speaking with Kenneth R. Rosen. He's a journalist and author of Troubles. The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs. Ken, I, I appreciate the conversation today. Thanks for your time. Jonathan, thank you. Still to come, How the Wilds Can Heal. Will White, author of Stories from the Field, A History of Wilderness Therapy, joins us after the break. And a reminder that if you missed any of our shows, check us out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There you'll see last week's episode on love drugs and how MDMA may soon be a useful tool in couples therapy. That's all ahead on Life Examined. You're listening to KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Kenneth Rosen's compelling and traumatizing accounts of his and others' experiences in outdoor therapy programs. But what about those programs that don't just hurt— but heal. The Outdoor National Leadership Schools, or the Boys and Girl Scouts of America, have been around for a century, successfully teaching kids about the environment, outdoor skills, and even wilderness medicine. 
Many say that scouting has empowered kids, many of whom have learned valuable skills and self-reliance. Will White is author of Stories from the Fields, A History of Wilderness Therapy. He also hosts a weekly podcast called Stories from the Fields, Demystifying Wilderness Therapy. He's a teaching lecturer at Plymouth State University in Plymouth, New Hampshire, and co-founder of Summit Achievement. White says the field of outdoor therapy has its roots in many ancient traditions, and, as he'll explain in a moment, that just being outdoors, walking and talking in the woods, can be an effective therapy for today's troubled youth. Will White, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I, I want to have you quickly just re- reflect on, on, on a guest we just heard. This is Kenneth Rosen, somebody you've spoken to before, and tells a very moving story about uh, his life and, and this, this world of, of these kind of outdoor camps that these young people get sent to oftentimes against their will. Um, what, what are your thoughts on some of the stories that he's told? And there is this, this industry that's built around that. How, how do you make sense of all this stuff? Well, first and foremost, I have so much compassion for those who have been harmed in the name of mental health treatment. The field that I work in is called wilderness therapy. And Ken and, and others' experiences in segments of the wilderness therapy field have been harmed. And mm. I think that many mental health practices over the years and even currently, have not always been helpful for people. And Ken's and other stories reflect that. And for myself as a licensed clinical social worker of over 30 years of practicing, I have compassion, and I am sorry those things have happened. And the field of wilderness therapy is is quite big. And it's gone on for a very, very long time, and that's what my research is about. And Ken's and others who are very concerned about their experiences, those who have, those who have been taken against their will to a certain part of wilderness therapy, this segment, which is adolescent, uh, private pay, in, in, for the most part, um, their stories are, are being heard, and, and the field needs continues to need to change as Mm -hmm. mental health is evolving. So is wilderness therapy was part of of mental health. So compassion, and we need to hear critics of any field in this Mm -hmm. time. And we need to listen and make change as needed. Mm -hmm. And the field of wilderness therapy has been around, well, it goes back even before the spoken word and with indigenous people, but my my work has been tracing like how did this field even start? Yeah, well, I, that's something I'm really interested in because while the stories of of Ken, uh, you know, touch our hearts and and fill us with compassion, as you mentioned. I know there are thousands, if not millions, of stories of those that have had a much different uh, and wonderful experience in wilderness therapy, Um, and most likely that has something to do with the fact that they were voluntarily allowing themselves to be put in those situations. But if you could, and I know the the history goes really far back, try and encapsulate 
where wilderness therapy comes from and, <laughs> and where it's taken us. My doctoral dissertation work, my life work, and do this in about five minutes. So I'm going to. Or perhaps we could even frame it within the U.S. Yeah. to give us so let, some some grounding. I, I'm going to I'm going to break it into a couple pieces because I believe sure. that the majority or of your listeners and probably you, Jonathan, have actually been in. Uh, wilderness therapy in one form of another. And um, the way I will say it is, how did this field evolve? And, and in my dissertation work, I really looked at how did it evolve in the United States? Yeah, And we can look at the transcendentalist movement in the that was in the East Coast, like Thoreau and Emerson and, and that sort yeah. of going to land and to find oneself, right? That's in the yes. 1800s. The first summer camp in America started in the, in the 1880 in New Hampshire. And that's where the origins go back to. So there's summer camps, the Boys and Girl Scouts of America, Outward Bound summer camps. There was a course called Brigham Young University's Class 480 Youth Leadership Through Outdoor Survivals outdoor educators. So all of these movements. Did you go to summer camp, Jonathan? I have been to summer camps. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. Was, do you think, and were you a teen or? or... Yeah, I, I was, I was, I was probably about 14 or so. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. they didn't say you were going to a, a wilderness therapy program, did they? No, no. No. Do you think it was therapeutic for you? <laughs> I would say so, yeah. yeah. I'll call your parents yeah. and ask, okay, we, right? Because we'll you're saying yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so you think about it. And so the, it evolved to say, how can we help people in the outdoors and provide therapy? It was in 1922, the first therapeutic summer camp in America opens up in upstate New York, and it was the Manhattan Jewish League of Guardians that provided this. There were social workers, there were psychiatrists, and they were taking kids from Manhattan with mental health disorders. So that was a one big like step. Mm -hmm. In 1946, therapeutic long-term camps start. And then in 1962, Outward Bound comes to the United States, and it really begins this mountaineering-style expedition wilderness therapy. Now, in 62 and 68, those early years, the 60s, the 70s, and 80s, there wasn't a lot of licensed mental health professionals. You don't really see that until 1996, where like a newer term is, is used called outdoor behavioral health care. Mm wilderness therapy. And that's when you see really a lot of licensed mental health professionals working in programs. Mm. So the field was very influenced by, you know, ancient traditions. I mean, we can go back to, you know, Jesus in the desert or Buddha under the the tree, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's it's that adolescence going out and and kind of coming back and learning about themselves. That that that's really helpful. And 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 if I can ask, as you know, you're you're a licensed mental health care counselor, and yeah, what does the wilds, the experiences in nature, provide to somebody who is trying to sort through a mental health disorder? What's the healing benefit of these places? 
Well, one of the things that I like to share with people is walking along with someone with wisdom mm. for an hour versus sitting in an office and comparison that. Just think about what it's like for you to be with someone walking in the woods and talking. And that is wilderness therapy. And with the construct of being in an office and doing therapy is actually, a, it's, it's newer, right? Mm. So when you're outside and you're, you're working through issues, that is called wilderness therapy. Sometimes you're actually doing that where you're doing initiatives, so challenges things, so the expedition model. In, in Ken's stories and others, it's, it's actually it's pushing it, um, and, and some to extreme, but it's to face those challenges with guides who are helping you deal with things. Mm. I take it you've seen you've seen transformation many times. Oh, so many times, and many young people who have gone through Summit Achievement, which I founded in 1996, and this is a voluntary program, is, and, and though a lot of times kids are like, I don't like it here, but I'm working through it, and the parents have taught, tried traditional outpatient, and they have tried intensive outpatient, but parents, in general, do not choose this path. Um, just like, well, my kid's struggling a little. I'm going to send him to wilderness therapy. I, I've done a whole season on my podcast, Stories from the Field, demystifying wilderness therapy, where I talk to former parents. Mm -hmm. And there's like, I didn't, it was really hard. I, I, I came to this decision. And, and in some ways, they're vulnerable because of that. But they tell the story. And I've had former students, like, and Ken wasn't on the episode of, uh, or the season of former students because his book came out later, but who talked like, I I didn't like it when I was going through it, but it, it saved my life. Mm. Um, and that was their experiences. Yeah, Many of our students have come on to be staff or therapists in our program because of the change. And, and if you think about young people today, especially now during this pandemic, the amount of time they've been on screens, just being in the woods and disconnected from the, all the noise and being back to really a mindful place, and a peaceful place, because you're outdoors. Yeah, yeah, that, that last piece. I mean, we talk a lot about mindfulness on this program, but for you to, to see uh, adolescents, teens uh, that are forced to, to, I think, many in many ways kind of encounter themselves for the first time, to be with their thoughts on a real authentic level, I mean, that's, that must be something interesting to witness and perhaps very hard for people to go through. Yeah, I think any therapy, any effective therapy has its challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Therapy isn't easy. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, what do we get from those experiences? Hopefully we get growth and insight. Do you think that for many, uh, wilderness therapy is enough or or when people come back do they need more more services more help what, what's your experience with that so at summit most of our students return back home right so mm -hmm. they're with us six weeks they, they they i mean ken's experience and some others have been they're going on to therapeutic boarding schools is that there is a segment that clearly that's gone on but most of our 
turn home and usually get transitional services or coaching back home. You work with the family system. Um, and our hope is they continue to spend time outside, walking, hiking. Some of them become, I want to do this. I felt good. I finally learned something. I learned something that made me feel better. Mm -hmm. You know, adolescence now, when we first started, some our, our student profile was different. And now it's much more the anxious, depressed kids who are really, you know, they live in a very scary world and they've internalized that. And it has um, made it so some of them are afraid to leave their house. Mm -hmm. And go ahead. I mean, the whole idea of outward bound, the whole idea was to empower people. Young, actually, it was young sailors initially when Kurt Hahn founded in the 40s, um, was to empower mm. people. National, National Outdoor Leadership School, empowering. Mm. Scouting was to empower and to feel like, okay, I, I can do these things independently. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's there's a lot of spirituality in wilderness therapy because just being in the wilderness is profoundly um, impactful. Yeah, that that word empowerment is a really interesting one, and I, I think it's it's the idea we hope to take away from being in these spaces and, and learning to be self sufficient or self reliant. And it was interesting the way that Ken talked about it, which was that um, they didn't quite get that a lot of times it seemed um, they were kind of beaten down but never lifted back up which i think to me seemed like the opposite of what what something like yeah the that's it, you know it yeah. saddens me to hear that yeah about and if you think about wilderness therapy it's it's big mm -hmm. and it's there's outpatient practitioners now right. there's day treatment wilderness therapy and ken's book and other people's experience has been one segment that you know it's painful and there is ongoing evolution of this field mm -hmm. i see that there'll be more regulation of in different states maine is a much more regulated state than other states in the country and behavioral health care is regulated mm -hmm. and a lot of wilderness therapy programs, one of the things that I would encourage is making sure it's an accredited program that is, is licensed for, by the state it is operating in to a, be a residential treatment center right. or whatever's equal, where there's people uh, who come in to review things, who look at how, the practices, that the clinicians there are all licensed to provide mental health services, mm -hmm. that they're doing research. Um, now, uh, in 2014 is when they, I mean, the field started to have accreditation, which was the national accreditation. Mm. And more and more research is going on. Yeah. You know, years ago, I used to have to try to explain what wellness therapy was, because I've been doing it almost 30 years, and now people like, I understand it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I understand. Oh, I went to an outward bound golf course. It was so therapeutic. I did a Noel semester. Or I went to a wilderness therapy program. Mm -hmm. I teach wilderness therapy at a small college in New Hampshire called Plymouth State University. And many of my um, students for the class went to wilderness therapy programs when they were in high school mm -hmm. age. 
and they want to work in the field. There's mm -hmm. careers in it. There's degrees in it. Yeah. You, you said something a, a moment ago that also really caught my attention, which is the idea of, of the, the teen or adolescent returning to something called the family system, which is yes. the, the understanding that, um, that families are interdependent, they are dynamic, Absolutely. that one piece of the family will impact the rest of the family. And this is a word that, that Ken used as well, and I think there's been this acknowledgement that instead of thinking as the adolescent, as, um, as the problem, as the identified patient, another word that he used, that perhaps yeah. we need to think now about the family at large and not just the identified patient, not the problem just being with one person. Completely agree. I was, I was trained in family systems therapy mm -hmm. in social work school, in I got my degree, my MSW in 1987. Yeah. So family systems work is critical. Every wilderness therapy program is doing family work. Yeah. Nowadays, I can't speak to Ken. I mean, Ken did not experience that, and some others didn't. But I would say anybody who is doing this without work without that right now, that's you know, that's old thinking to not do that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you have any advice to parents um, who are are dealing with with a teen that needs direction, uh, that can feel lost, and they've heard all different types of stories about what's out there. What what would you tell them to to give them some ideas as to how to move forward with making a decision about wilderness therapy? Well, first and foremost, you don't take that decision lightly. Mm -hmm. You try other types of intervention, outpatient, family systems work. Then, if those things aren't working, you educate. Yeah. People need to get as much education about a program because it's a huge commitment, and you want to make sure a program is accredited, it is, does research, that you're talking to your child, um, there's communication. And then there's these other cases where it gets very, where, and, and I heard many stories about this, and just because I don't have that much experience in it, is when, when sometimes things are just so out of control that some people are doing, they're intervening and they're taking, and they're considering, they say, you know what? I'm trying to save my child's life because if they keep using drugs and alcohol as they do, um, they're going to die or kill someone. Um, don't take it lightly, but you have to listen to other people and get as much information as you can before you make that decision. Yeah. Whether that's hiring an educational consultant, but I'm a big believer. Part of the reason why I wrote the book and how the podcast is to educate people mm -hmm. about this segment of behavioral health care. Yeah. Well, I've been speaking with Will White. He's the author of Stories from the Fields, A History of Wilderness Therapy. Thanks for your perspective and for, for a bit of the history today. I've really appreciated it. A, truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. It's really great. Well, that's all for today. 
The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.